welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today, Tiny Voice Talks is in one of those places that we get to every so often where I start off without a theme. Now, the hope is that myself, my great guest, will actually get to naming this episode by the end of the, the episode. We just don't quite know what to call it yet. So I'm going to welcome my guest, which is Kevin Wather. Hello, Kevin. How are you today? Good morning, Toria. I'm really well, thanks. Yes, I'm sure we'll figure out the title of the episode by the end. Looking forward to it. So for all those that haven't come across you, who is Kevin Wather? Sure. So Kevin Wather, who am I? I'm a dad, first of all, of two wonderful young children. I'm a governor at a local primary school around where I live. And I'm somebody who's just really, really passionate about the world of education um, and this goes to my heritage a little bit, actually. So first of all, it's in the blood. Um, my mum's a teacher. My sister's a teacher. I used to tutor children when I was a bit younger. And in the heritage, if you go back a couple of generations, I, I'm Indian by origin. So two generations ago, my grandfather grew up in India and very poor, I should add, in a tiny village, one hut, lots of children. And um, legend has it that he studied by streetlight because he knew the power of education. And fast forward 20 years later, he became a doctor and moved to Africa, which is a land of opportunity at that time, around the uh, 1950s, uh, where my parents were born. And then they kind of used education as a way of propelling themselves. So uh, they they basically moved to the UK in the 1970s for university because they'd been sort of educated to to reach up to that level. Um, and, and I was born here in the UK and I was really fortunate to have a very, very good education, um, sort of ending up at the University of Cambridge. And, you know, it's just a little bit of a crazy story when you rewind, you know, just two generations ago, my grandfather trying to educate by streetlight in a tiny poor village in India. Um, and so the, the power and the value of education is something that my family has always really appreciated, and, and I certainly do today. Uh, it's a very important part of my makeup, which is why I put it in my answer as to who Coven is. It's so lovely to hear. And oh my goodness, your grandfather would be so incredibly proud of you and to know where the family have sort of arrived at, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but... Equally, I don't want to rest on my laurels, right? I want to mm. do more for not just my kids, but other kids out there as well. And in this world of today, very modern, technology-orientated, connected world, I think there's a role that I could play, hopefully, through technology to help not just my kids, but, but many other kids. Um, and that's where kind of I see my uh, continuing involvement in education, right? Not just in my family, but, but hopefully others as well. Do your children value education? They're starting to. They're starting to. Uh, they're a little too young to ah. really know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I suppose if my wife and I are doing our jobs correctly, then then they would. You know, they have lots of inspirational stories uh, in the in in the generations to inspire them. So keep our fingers crossed. I think it's a really interesting one. My grandmother was very very passionate about education she was the first she was one of 13 actually and she became a nurse because she believed that that was the way to 
truly find herself and find her own sort of power by actually educating herself to become a nurse. And then she was passionate about my mum and her children, you know, and, and her other two children. Also, you know, f- having the value of education, all of them became teachers. And then you've got, you know, me. And I remember, I remember her sort of, it sounds weird, but in a sense, drumming it into me, how important education was. Um, you know, and I wonder... I wonder if we do that as much nowadays with our own children. I don't know. Yeah, I think it can go in one of two ways, right? When you think about the values a parent bestows upon their children, it Mm. it can go in the reinforcement way where it's drummed in, if you like, but it's well received and they see the value of it because they see what it's done to you, the parent and so on, uh, be it working in healthcare or working in education or whatever the, the family passion is. Uh, or it can sometimes go the other way if you're not careful as a parent, right? We've, I think, uh, speaking to all parents out there, I'm sure we've all had that moment where we're like, well, we must do this thing. It's really important. And then you spark this re- rebellious behavior where the child wants to do the exact opposite just because it's the opposite. So I, I think um, I think you can go in two, one or two ways, but, um, but it sounds like it's gone well in, in your family and, and hopefully it will go well in mine as well. Absolutely. So we, we couldn't decide what to call this episode, could we, Kevin? We, we sort of jumped between many things. Um, and actually, we wanted to call it at one point supporting parents. But then we felt that it, it really wasn't so much that we wanted to discuss about how schools could support parents, but actually, in a sense, how schools and parents could work together to better support children. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, I think there's something there, isn't there? The, the role of the parent in supplementing the education and sort of skills and experience of the child. Uh, and of course, the whole COVID-19 episode has brought that into sharp relief, hasn't it? Um, oh, hasn't it just? <laughs> home, homeschooling having to, to happen um, and us kind of, us making, it, and it being made really rather obvious that actually the child is at the center of everything and it doesn't matter what setting that they're learning in, school or home, we want to integrate a joined up system that teaches them at the end the things they need to know for life. Um, and, and sort of to further underline that, one, one data point, because I, I, I do love my data, uh, one da- <laughs> data point I came across, which was shocked, which shocked me. But as I said it to you um, before, Toria, you, you were sort of nodding in, in agreement because you, you already knew this, right? Uh, that when you look at a child's waking hours on average across the year, only 20% is spent at school, the other 80% is at home. Um, and, and when I ask parents here, they're shocked. They're like, no, no, it must be more like 50-50, surely. But then when you think about the school holidays and the weekends and the evenings, et cetera, you can sort of quickly realize how actually a lot of time is spent at home. Um, and, and not that time at school is unimportant, like far from it. It's incredibly important. It's just that the time at home and the role and the impact that parents can have not for all of that 80%, but just for some of it, um, it, there's a great sort of leverage point in there, I, I feel. And, um, and as a parent myself, you know, I, I really appreciate those kinds of moments when even for just five or 10 minutes, I can have a little parenting win, you know, when I can do something meaningful with my kids, when I can shape them in some way, develop them in some way. Um, even if it's as simple as, um, you know, I went to the supermarket and I bought apples, apples and bananas, apples, bananas and cakes. You know, that game where you have to remember just a little memory game. I was playing that with my, my daughter yesterday, for instance, just little, little things like that. Um, if, 
if we can as a society as an educational system that sort of joined up between school and home if if there's a way of empowering helping inspiring parents to make more of the odd five ten minutes here or there where they can have these little coaching moments or developmental moments then I think we're better utilizing all that time that a child is at home with the parents under their influence I couldn't agree more. And it's really interesting because I only know that statistic because someone said it to me and I said, yeah, that's not true. (laughs) And I said, there's no way, 80-20. And then I actually worked it out and I know you actually worked out as well. Mm -hmm. And it is true. It's just, you think, goodness me, 80%, you know, at home and only 20% at school. And therefore, you know, as a parent, I need to make sure then that I'm not just going, oh, well, you know, they spend enough time at school. But it doesn't need to be tricky and challenging stuff. As you say, you know, that game is really, it brought me back to my childhood. My dad used to play that game with me every single day on the way to school. We used to be in the car and we used to, you know, he'd play all of these sort of car games. Um, that was one of our favourites. But it was such a good memory game for actually keeping our focus. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And and little tips, little little hacks, little conversation ideas or kind of questions that get kids thinking. You know, my, my passion is about furnishing parents with that sort of thing so that they can more easily make the most of, of those five minutes in the car, let's say. Because you know, here's here's the other thing with with a parent's life, with, with frankly anybody's life nowadays, right? It's it's busy, it's hectic, it's stressful. And so, you know, when I was talking to parents around you know what what can we do or how how can I help you or you know what what would help you generally in order to make more of these sort of five minute coaching opportunities that arise they said things to me like um well you know probably I could think of something like this if I really put my mind to it but at the end of a long working day I'm tired I don't have the energy inspiration is hard to come by and so that's when they're looking for some sort of go-to easy quick fun resource because they're, they're very happy to spend time like this with kids. You know, your, your dad was very happy to play these talking games in the car, right? I'm very happy to do this kind of stuff with my child. And actually, at the end of it, as a parent, you feel, uh, you feel great, right? You've got this sort of high-five parenting moment, and you've also developed your child in the ways that, that really matter um, with, that, with that talking game. As an example, right, Mem- memory and creativity, um, uh, important skills. And the thing with them, um, but the thing, the thing that sometimes parents say is that, you know, I'm, I'm not well placed to sort of teach my child like a teacher would at school. You know, I don't, I don't know uh, geographies. So I can't teach them about Europe. Um, I, I don't know anything about politics. So I can't teach them about um, any conflicts happening in the world. I'm, I don't know maths. So I can't do algebra. I don't, and that's, that's, that will make sense, right? That's, that's why we have specialist teachers in schools where our children can learn that that important specialist knowledge. Um, but when it comes to sort of, if you like, just life skills, right? This is what I think parents are quite well placed to to coach on. And you know, I'll give you give you a quick example that, that I'll I remember, I think I'll always remember. Uh, we were, I must have been 10 years old, and we were walking around in London, and um, I think we'd been to see some sort of attraction. Anyway, we were finding a lunch place. I think we're going to McDonald's. And we passed a homeless person on the streets. He was just sitting there on the pavement in his cardboard box with a sign saying, I'm hungry, um, please give me some money. 
And I saw that. And I think that was the first time I'd ever really seen something like that with my own two eyes. Um, I'm sure I'd seen stuff like that on TV, but it's different when you see it in person, right? And, and I must have been about 10 years old. And, and I remember this really sort of sick feeling that was created in the pits of my stomach. Um, and we walked on and we went to McDonald's. We got our burgers and chips and what have you. And then we sat down to eat. And I, and I just couldn't eat. I just couldn't eat. And, I, and my mum was there. I said, mum, I can't eat. I keep thinking about that homeless person. You know, and, and I still remember she, she sort of looked at me, she moved the burgers to the side and she just had a chat with me for five minutes, you know, talking to me about, well, why, why do you think he's there? What, what, what made him be on the streets? Um, is it his fault or is it society's fault? Um, do you want to help him? How should we help him? Should we help him or should we help his, his uh, homeless na- neighbor kind of next door? Like who should we, who should we pick if we had to pick? Um, and she just sort of asked me questions that, help me engage with the topic. And, you know, there's no, there's no perfect answer to any of this, right? It's not like we solved homelessness in London in, in one, uh, one sweeping conversation, but we, we talked around it enough such that I started appreciating more the situation and I started thinking through it a little bit more. And, and to a degree, I sort of made peace with it at least enough to, to eat, to be able to eat my lunch. Um, and, you know, there, my mum, she didn't have any specialist knowledge, right? About, the number of homeless people in London or anything like that, or what the government was doing. or But no, she was just able to ask me questions that got me talking and thinking and sort of understanding how I felt about the situation. Um, and, it's, and it's these what I call parent coaching moments, which are um, can be spontaneous and sometimes serendipitous. But, um, you know, with, with the work that I'm doing with parents, it's something that I'm trying to help parents craft and create because I've seen firsthand the power of these coaching moments that a parent can have with their children. And, and that's the sort of, uh, sort of support or empowerment that, um, that I think all parents and therefore all children would really benefit from. I really like that. I've got, I've got to say, it's interesting. The parent coaching moments sort of, it makes me feel slightly anxious as a parent. But actually, when you explain what you did about what your mum did, I thought, yeah, yeah, no, I, I do do that sort of stuff. But you're, the role of parent, you're quite right. It is completely different from that of a teacher. You know, um, I don't expect the parents, the children I teach to be sitting down and teaching the children geography, history, whatever else. But it's, you know, in a, and, and sometimes I think parents can feel that the only time that they can teach their children per se is with sort of homework or reading or whatever else but it's it's not what you're saying is actually it's about capturing those moments really helping children to make sense of the world that they are living in and developing those soft skills would I be right yeah yeah absolutely and the soft skills or 21st century skills, future skills, human skills, they go under mm. many different labels, right? But they're the things that the late, great Ken Robinson would have talked about, um, creativity, critical thinking, communication, compassion, collaboration, th- those sorts of things. And all, all it takes, I think, are some simple conversation starter type questions, right? Yeah. So if you wanted to just instill a bit of creativity in your child, um, imagine you're, you're sat there in the in the living room you sat on the sofa um you could ask hey you know how could we make the sofa better how would you improve upon the sofa like what features would you add cup holders or a a a holder for a playstation game 
um, or like a, a way for it to turn into a bed at the press of a button or, you know, it can all be a little bit silly as well, right? But it, it gets creative. I love going. that idea. Yeah, I really like that idea because, again, that's the sort of stuff that we do have conversations like that in the classroom. But to have those sort of conversations at home, how exciting. And I, I'll be honest, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with my daughter about changing a piece of furniture, but it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're at the dinner table, right, is another great time for family talk. And so one of my favorite ones there is uh, just you know, look, look at a cup and say, um, uh, so Mia, Mia is the name of my daughter. Uh, so Mia, what, what else could we do with this cup? Um, well, we could drink from it, Daddy. Yeah, yes, okay. But can you think of 10 other things you can do with this cup? Uh, and this type of question actually is used by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. He's a, a famous sort of economist, author, writer, speaker, general thought leader. Um, and he he uses it as an initiation test with any new person that he hires because it's a test of divergent thinking, right? How much can you open your mind to think broadly and divergently about all the different things in this case that you can do with a cup yeah. rather than the traditional sort of convergent thinking where people seem to want to channel down to an answer, which is in the academic world what we're very used to, right? Two plus two equals four. It'll always equal yep. four, right? But in... Uh, the world of creativity, if that's a skill that you're trying to enhance, uh, which I think we all agree is going to be important in the world of tomorrow for our kids, um, open-ended divergent thinking is important. And so bringing it back to the dinner table, even something as simple as, hey, what are, what are 10 things we could do with this cup uh, are quite helpful. Um, and then within that, uh, some using using scaffolding to try and help open up some of the, the higher order answers. So um, we... You know, we, we make this quite easy for parents. We sort of supply these um, scaffolded prompts. So we say something like, well, look, if you turn the cup upside down, it could be a drum. Okay, now what else can you do with it upside down? So now they're suddenly thinking about upside down, not just the right way around. Um, or, you know, a higher scaffold is, what if the cup was really, really big, like the size of a house, right? Who says a cup has to be small, right? If it was really, really big, it could be what? It could be one child said to me, or it could be a swimming pool. Okay, fair enough, right? Again, it doesn't have to be um, uh, completely logical. It can be a little bit silly. The point is you've really expanded the, the, the broadness of thinking through that one simple stimulus. What are 10 things we can do with a cup? And I suppose if you're not a divergent thinking parent, actually you do need those prompts to guide and help because actually all too often, I don't know if it gets, does it get knocked out of us? But I think, you know, where sort of where you're very small where you're sort of two years old and you've got a cup and you're sort of doing all sorts with it including putting it on your head um <laughs> you know and using it as a hat you know suddenly as you get older and older it becomes a cup and it holds liquid and that's what it does and I don't I don't know if you know our divergent thinking becomes more limited I don't, I don't know I, th I think it does I I was working with um a philosophy for children expert Mm. And he was telling me, because a lot of a lot of our work sort of ties in with that. Uh, and he was telling me that a peak questioning age in a child is four years old. Yeah. Which is such a scary statistic, isn't it? I mean, we, we know that kids are born curious. We're all, we're all born curious. We're naturally curious, right? Homo sapiens are curious at birth. Um, but then to your point, Toria, that the system somehow beats it out of us bit by bit. You know, after the age well, of I four. think what happens because I've taught reception right up to eighteen, 
And I know that in reception, children, when, when it comes to role play, you know, etc., and and the creativity, they are really happy to experiment with that divergent thinking. They aren't thinking in a very, very straight linear fashion. And as we go through the, you know, through the years as such, they learn that there are the right answers and they become more anxious about, I, I need to give you the right answer and this is the right answer and this is the way it looks. And I, I think what happens is that we then have to try and develop creativity again, because in a sense, accidentally, we have knocked it out of them. We, you know, we've become very much, oh, well, you know, you want to know what I could do with this couple. Let me, what, what are the right answers to this? Right. That And that phrase, the right answer, has a place and time, right? So if, if you're doing your yeah. math GCSE, you, you should get the right answer because it's important. Um, but when you're developing thinking skills and you're sort of thinking all the way around a topic or if you're uh, getting practice and communicating and giving your opinion on something that there is no right answer necessarily and that's a good thing you know so if if you're if you're posed with questions like um you know if you could live forever would you want to is there a right answer to that or, or should you always be honest mm. is there a right answer to that if you could travel back in time what one thing would you change is there a right answer to that? You know, the, these sorts of um, open-ended stimulus questions is the kind of thing that, you know, I, I, I've been asking my kids and yeah. in the work we do, I, I know other parents could have, are, are taking this and asking their kids this sort of thing specifically to sort of repel against that sort of there's one answer, convergent way of thinking and really open up their minds and 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 asking kids for their opinions this is the other thing. Like kids, kids love giving their opinions, don't they? Oh, <laughs> they they absolutely adore it. They really do. Um, but it, going back to your point about the right answer, etc., what I find I have to do with my class um, is actually say to them. So I teach year four. I actually have to say to them, "There is no right answer," mm. and empower them so that they aren't worrying about the right answer. Because one of the ones I do, I don't know if you've done this one, are similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask them, you know, what are the similarities and differences between wood and chocolate or something entirely right. random? And and actually, those sort of questions, and you can pick two entirely random things, like what are the similarities and differences between a doorknob and a light bulb? And in their conversation, they usually come up with similarities and differences but it's taken time for them to recognize that there isn't, there aren't any right answers and it's absolutely fine. And actually what that then lends itself to, which I love, it really is, it comes back to what you were saying about opinions. Because, you know, with, for example, we've done paper and chocolate and someone will talk about the similarity and, you know, someone will go, oh, well, but, it, you know, I'm not sure. Is that a similarity? You know, and the, and the other one I love doing are um, similarities and differences between this. Um, this is really sad. I'm slightly a Marvel addict. <laughs> so I will I will ask them about the superheroes, what the similarities and differences between, you know, say two superheroes. And again, it's very opinion-based and the children love giving their opinions in that respect. Yeah, completely. And that similarities, differences one activates a brain in different ways, right? Mm, it so... does, completely. Wood and chocolate, okay, well, they're both brown, but they would taste very different. And, and just in thinking through that, like your 
it's like different you can feel different parts of your brain firing as, as you're yeah. thinking about in group out group like, uh, similarities and, and differences and and then on the opinions what, what is quite nice in the school classroom but can also be done in in a family with sort of two or three siblings is when you have multiple opinions yeah and those opinions likely differ um and i i know the the world of oracy does this really well which is also a sort of a movement that i'm connected to in the work i do and i know you spoke to, to Sarah oh, Davies I'm about Oracy before. Yeah, I'm passionate about Oracy. I think it's so vital in this day and age. And and so Oracy, um, so for example, Voice 21, which is like one of the, the national uh, champions of Oracy, uh, they have these different speaking roles, don't they? Of um, uh, builder and instigator and clarifier and, and so on. So when you have different opinions, you could sort of uh, train children on well, okay, today you're the you're the facilitator, so you'll be sort of yeah. trying to arbitrage between the different opinions to help the group arrive to consensus. Um, or, or you're the challenger, where your job is to like always think of something different, for instance. Um, which is which are very healthy roles to have practice in, and in in playing those roles gives you another set of skills, kind of around you know just working in a group. So I, I really love the the oracy work that happens in in various schools and. Um, and I can have to talk to various sort of oracy experts with, with the work I'm doing. But in, in the home environment, I think this can also happen if you have, as I say, two or three siblings, or if you're having a family chat, you know, it's, you know, mum, dad, and child one, child two, for instance, at home, where you can all have different opinions on things. And and it's incredibly empowering for the kids, isn't it? When 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 they're asked their view on something and they're almost treated like an adult, mm. where at school potentially if they're learning math or english or something there there is this teacher student dynamic and and rightly so um but at, at home like it's pros- possibly more of a level playing field right where the there is no sort of purveyor of knowledge um there are just good questions being had uh, good questions being asked and good discussions being had and everybody's on this kind of same level playing field around the same dinner table having a chat voicing opinions and sort of debating almost with each other you know that's um that's the that's that's certainly the vision i have for, for my household you know healthy hearty discursive uh, dinner table chats which in so doing you know as a parent if you're sort of providing the stimulus in the right way you're you're actually you know building some creativity skills some critical thinking skills some some empathy skills even right because you've got to listen to what other people are saying and understand and recognize their viewpoint and their emotions from which it comes and and things like that and and these are just, all skills that I just see are so crucial for the workplace. They, they already are now, you know, when, when you look at the, the gap that employers say they see in the graduates they take in, they're, they're all the interpersonal yeah. skills, right? That the LinkedIn CEO a few years ago, he said that the, the biggest gap that employers see are interpersonal skills. Um, and that gap is only increasing. Um, and I can, I can wax lyrical about how fast the world is is changing and, and how this this uh, the skills gap will only increase as we need more and more soft skills and maybe maybe we'll go there. I'll take your steer, um, but the 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 role of the parents just through simple conversation at home, sparked by the right stimulus, I, I'm just so passionate about and so passionate about supporting not just in my family but but many others. I think you're right about the fact that you know the world is changing 
so fast. It really is. I spoke to Carl Pupe and he was saying that, you know, it's the world that we're living in is such that actually if you're employed by sort of Google today, well, actually just proving you're able to do X, Y, Z today might not be what you're doing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. because the technology is changing for so fast. And I, he gave me, now, I know you like data, and I can't remember the data that he gave me exactly, but he said that there was, was a huge percentage of jobs that our children will be employed in have not even been created yet. Yeah, 85% is a data um, point it's, there. Yeah, it's, yeah I so, knew you'd know that data point. But... I just had a feeling. <laughs> but that's insane, isn't it? That is absolutely nuts, yeah. So they said by the year 2030... 85% of the jobs that exist but have not even been invented yet. And they did that study in 2017 um, as by the Institute for the Future. It, it's, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely nuts. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. So we are all very used to uh, Facebook and Google and Amazon and iPhones and iPads and all this good stuff today, right? But just think back 10 years ago, mm. there was no iPad. 20 years ago... There was no, there's no Facebook. I think Google had just started 20 years ago. Amazon was just selling books. That's just 20 years ago. Okay, now now think about your 10 year old child. Let's say, and they emerge into the world yeah. of work in 15 years or so. Yeah. Right? Just like what what's going to happen? And you know, with the with the what's what's that analogy? The the frog in water that's slowly heating up, right? We, mm. but it's heating up faster and faster. So we don't necessarily recognize the changes that are happening. But when you just yes. take a snapshot 10 years apart, you see a world of difference. And the rise of AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning means that humans are going to need to do more of the creative tasks and the, the evaluative sort of judgment tasks rather than the the number crunching or text processing or, you know, AI will take over a lot of our work. And that in a really healthy way, by the way, I have a very kind of utopian view of the future, not a <laughs> dystopian view, because, you know, there's the the, the the audience is split on that, isn't it? Um, but but I think in a, in a really positive way, um, you know, humans will be free to do the things that humans are really, really good at, you know, working with people, talking with people, managing emotions, managing teams, um, thinking outside the box. Uh, the, these are the, the more human skills that are going to be really important, which is why right now I want to double down with my kids and any other families that I work with on these 21st century skills. Um, and just to like, just to underline that point, um, the, the OECD director of education last year said that, you know, we need to develop first-class humans, not second-class robots first-class humans, not second-class robots. What he meant by that was if, if all we train our children in is uh, sort of crunching numbers, processing text, well, you know, guess what? A robot is always going to do that better than we ever can, right? We will, if that's all our kids know, then we'll just end up raising second-class robots. Actually, what we need is first-class humans. It's, it's, it's people that are fantastic at all the human stuff that a robot finds very, very difficult to replace. You know, that will be the, the role of humans. That will be those would be the kinds of jobs that our kids will have. Um, and, you know, I think it's incredibly empowering as a parent to think that I, I can shape the development of my child so that they have a, a happy and successful career, knowing that that career will change multiple times over uh, because the world will continue changing fast, even once they start their employment. 
Yeah, completely. And that creativity, which you keep coming back to. Now, for the listeners out there, whether they be parents or teachers, you've mentioned a few times that, you know, you've, you've got the help out there and you've got the, you know, the support out there for parents. Where is it? How do they connect with this? So what I've done is I've created an app called Kid Coach App, Kid mm-hmm. Coach App. So you just have to search on your usual app store and you can download it and there's a free two-week trial. Kid Coach app. So, so what this does for parents is that it helps them have more meaningful and skill-building conversations with their children. Um, because inside that app, we have hundreds and hundreds of questions, many of which I've given you examples for in, in this chat, um, but deliberately designed to build creativity, critical thinking, communication, empathy, leadership, and, and so on, all these softer skills. And the idea is that they're like digital flashcards, So there's the question that parents can ask kids, but then there's also scaffolded prompts so that they can take the conversation deeper. Um, Parents tell me that they're perfect for at the dinner table or in the car, as long as you're not driving, Um, and you know on the sofa or going for a walk or wherever it kind of slots into a a five-minute pocket of time that that family has. So um, it's the it's the Kid Coach app, and you know we're we're really lucky to have a support of an advisory board of parenting and education experts. So um, Sarah Davies um, from the world of Oracy, yes. we had on, she's on our advisory board. Um, we we also have uh, Sue Atkins, who's a parenting Oh, expert. I love Sue. I interviewed her for my Origins program. She's ah, great. Perfect. She's hyper-enthusiastic. She's amazing. Um, we're, I'm even working from uh, with uh, Professor Neil Mercer at the University of Cambridge. He's yes. director of Oracy. So we're, we're we're trying to you know trying to trying to soak in as much of the, the expert guidance as possible, but really distill it down into a, a very quick, snappy, simple, fun app that parents can use with their kids to create more of these coaching moments. So uh, kid kid coach app, if anybody is interested, um, either for your own child or if it's from a school point of view that you're interested, that's always a conversation I'm happy to happy to to, to have. You can um, email me. Uh, everything's on the website, kidcoach.app. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming in and actually challenging my thinking as a parent, um, you know, and an educator. It's been really interesting talking to you. Now, before you go, Kevin, I always ask people the, fi- the my final question, which is if you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Yes, yeah, so I've mentioned him before. Um, it'd have to be Ken Robinson, oh, Sir Ken yeah. Robinson. Okay? He was, well, f- first of all, uh, he was just a great presenter and speaker, mm-hmm. wasn't he? He still got the most TED Talk views ever for his 2006 talk on um, creativity and how it's as important as literacy, as he says. Um, so he was he, he's a fantastic speaker, but then also the the topic and the content that he was imparting, right, and his focus on the eight C's and um, and essentially the importance of the softer skills uh, is something that. I think I found too late in my life mm-hmm. and I wish I'd seen that earlier. So if he was, <laughs> if he was, if he was training me up from the age of five or something, um, that, that would have been wonderful. It's, uh, the, the, the world is a, is a sadder uh, place now that he's gone, but his, his legacy very much continues. And, and hopefully with Kid Coach app, we're doing something to help a little bit of that continue on as well. 
Absolutely. Kevin, you have been a delight to talk to. You really have. Thank you so much for coming on Tiny Voice Talks. Thanks a lot for having me. This this was great. I really appreciate it.